I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Welcome to Face to Face. This is a show about change and what's next. It's a show that asks questions and peels back the layers of our average everyday experience and goes beyond scratching the surface. We interview people doing incredible things who are making a difference around the globe. Join me as we listen in and get one step closer to understanding that big ideas shared create collaboration. Collaboration can inspire community, and communities create social change. I'm David Peck, and this is Face to Face. This interview was a real pleasure for me to conduct today. It's a part two, I guess you could say, of an interview that we started back in uh, September 2015 at the Toronto International Film Festival for the release of the film Ninth Floor. It's a documentary about uh, part of Canada's history, about 46-year-old history. Uh, You're going to want to learn a little bit more about what went on in Montreal. It's an interesting story. It's a great film. Mina Shum and Selwyn Jacob, the producer, and Mina, the director, were both uh, on hand today at the National Film Forum to talk to me. And we had a great conversation. We talked about the public face and the private face. We talked about emotions and Carl Jung and, and, and film as being propaganda. And we talked about exterior and interior obstacles and self-taught documentary-style filmmaking. And in a way, that's who I was talking to today, two self-taught documentary filmmakers. It's an amazing film. It's a, it was a great conversation, a real delight. you got to check out the film. Hope you're going to enjoy the conversation. Get part one on davidpecklive.com or rabble.ca. You can download it on iTunes and enjoy the interview with Mina Shum and Selwyn Jacob, Ninth Floor. So anyway, thanks to you both, though, for joining us again. I really do appreciate it. And I'm hoping that we're going to uh, break, break a little ground here uh, as we move into this part two interview and, and uh, part two of the interview. And we're going to talk about the film without a doubt and maybe what's happened since TIFF. And now, you know, and congratulations, by the way, as being picked at the top, top ten for, for... Yeah, uh, pretty excited about that. Yeah, and for showing <laughs> us tonight. Yes. Uh, Excellent. So, want to hear about some of the stories that have, you know, as you've been moving across Canada with the film. But I think the most important question is, Selwyn, you mentioned, you talked about acting uh, in the, our first interview. Why didn't you pursue a career in acting? I really do want to want to know a little bit more about that. A little bit more about why I didn't pursue um, acting. 
I think, again, the, the idea of acting was this idea of not seeing yourself represented on the screen. As a little boy, 11 or 12 years old, I was fascinated with that idea, and I thought, okay, I'm going to become an actor. And I got to university, and I was scared to go into to the acting classes. You know, I'd never been on stage or anything like that, but I was driven by whatever... Um, whatever feeling I had for the for the acting process. So I took I took basic acting and, you know, we'd have to do monologues and, and things like that. And, and I always find, you know, as I would say, and I could emote with the best of them, you know, but I always felt I was just getting basically a passing grade. And I said, you know, I don't think they're sort of evaluating me on my acting ability as being evaluated on my accent. And that was something that was never going to go away. So in order to resolve that, I thought I'd have to get into a situation where I was creating the content. Then I can cast myself. Then I can do the stories that I'm fascinated by. And that led me away from acting into directing and producing because I then am in the position to select the content that I want to work on. So I've always found it pretty fascinating from a documentarian's perspective. How is it that you get pulled into, and this question is for both of you for sure, but, you know, uh, for the film students out there, how do, how, how do you decide that this is the story or uh, this is going to make for compelling viewing? Um, is, it, is, it, is it an article that, that stirs you up? Is it, a, is it, a, is it a, an epiphany that you have? Is it a place that you visit um, as, as a documentary filmmaker? Uh, it's it's a variety of things would be my my guess. Well, here's my particular um, situation. I went to film school in California, attended USC, and um, I never took a documentary course. I took feature filmmaking, and mm-hmm. I saw myself as doing narrative, you know, type of storytelling. Came back to Alberta in the mid seventies and ended up teaching in a place in northern Alberta, <laughs> a place called Laclabish. And um, I discovered that there was an all-black community right outside of Laclabish of people who left Oklahoma and homesteaded on the prairies. So all of a sudden, you know, something lights up in me. I said, I got to tell this story, you know. This is a dramatic film. You know, what are these people doing in this, this neck of the woods? And then I realized realistically nobody was going to give me money to make a feature film on a story which was outside of the mainstream. So somebody whispered in my ear, why don't you make a documentary? Most filmmakers start off that way. You know, they'll make a documentary on the topic, and then later on they're going to convert to drama. And I started doing that uh, documentary. I finished it in 1984, and I've never looked back. So I'm a self-taught documentarian but trained in narrative uh, narrative storytelling. And when I look back in hindsight, uh, most of my stories come from that simple premise, you know. I didn't know that. It applies to all of my films. So on the, uh, on the last interview, I, I, I had sort of commented about a philosopher who I've read, Mina, and how I thought of when I was watching this film from a stylistic pr- perspective, and I think just what someone has said here, I wonder sometimes if the best filmmakers are just really good philosophers because you're asking questions. You yeah, know? it's actually funny, that, Dave, because I, I was thinking, what what draws me to a film, an idea? And it's funny that you say that, Selwyn, because I'm also a narrative filmmaker who's self-taught in documentary. I don't even know what that means. I don't, I don't see, I see a great story. 
um, and the National Film Board being a documentary outfit, we made it a documentary. But I remember when someone first told me about The Ninth Floor, I said, this is a feature film. Oh my goodness, we could cast so-and-so. <laughs> you know, I had ideas of fiction because there's so, it was such a dramatic, emotional story. Um, but all films start with me with a question. It's something that's bugging me. It's something that, actually, in fact, <laughs> just recently, uh, I read something that bothered me, and I had some questions, and I tried very hard not to pursue it as an idea for a movie. I was like, I don't really want to do this because that would make it, I'd, you know, it's four years of your life every time you say yes to a film. Right. Um, but, but that's what it really is intrinsically, is there's something... Something I'm questioning, are there great characters? I, te I tend to voice the underdog. That's all my characters are people who are uh, misunderstood. Uh, and often not seen in the mainstream for, for whatever reason, age, race, gender, um, philosophy. But I really do think it is a point of view um, what draws me to a film? What is my philosophical is it, is, bent? Is it, a, is it a tension? Is it a dissatisfaction? So is it a question that's sort of framed with a dissatisfaction with the way things are? Or is it just sort of that, I don't know, um, that kind of scientific wonder or there's a mystery here that I'm not sure of that I need to, uh, you know, I need to peel back some of those layers. Is well, that what's drawing you in? Well, I think a, a little bit of all of that. Mm. Um, but, pro I mean... I think about, in particular, with the ninth floor, why didn't I know this story? That really bothered me. Um, what drove the students? Who are they? Well, how did, how did it feel to be them? That kept me up at night. When I originally, when someone originally gave me the, you know, the, the newspaper articles he'd collected on it, I was like, I wanted to know more. And that's, that's really what got me up in the morning with it. I was like, and, and how can this story? What what do what can I, what can I glean from something that happened so long ago? Like I think about, I don't know if we talked about this, but I do think about Carl Jung, right? And he says, um, uh, when when we suppress something, the uh, whatever you're suppressing suppressing tends to manifest itself physically. So if you hate your job and you secretly hate your job, suddenly you find yourself fired. This just happened to a friend of mine, actually. So she mm. secretly hated her job, and now she's no longer working there. Um, well, what is Sir George? Why was there a fire? Why did that physically manifest itself into thousands of students shutting down the university, people on the streets confronting each other? Um, maybe I have the lens of being 49 years away from the situation, so I can look at it a little bit clinically like that and go, what does that philosophically have to say about our common humanity? Um, so yeah, that's it, it's it, it's bizarre how like I, I was just thinking about the other day how um, many um, first-time filmmakers will go. I just saw a great film and I want to make that film, but my version of that film, right? And I know for myself personally that kind of quest, that admiration or homage making, doesn't go very far in terms of you know. You might write three pages, but it doesn't become a film in the end. It's not enough to keep you holding on for four so is, years. So are you talking about sort of a, a passionate, which, and I think this this applies definitely to someone, I can sense that for sure, but this passionate fire in your belly, as it were, yeah, that says, exactly. I've got to make this happen because yep. I care about it. Because Well, you, you said you're getting out of bed in the morning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wake up in the middle of the night thinking about 
things that bug me, right? And often I'm looking for a vehicle to be able to explore that. And the vehicle is always characters and the quest of those characters. What is it that, what is it that they want? What is stopping them from getting what how they did, want? How did being a narrative filmmaker um, change the way you made, you directed this piece? Well, it's funny because I never directed this piece before, so I can't really compare. <laughs> right. right. And this is your first documentary film, yes? First feature doc. I did first a, I did doc. a, I did a um, film called Me, Mum, and Mona, twenty-something uh, years ago. That hmm. won at Toronto. Okay. Uh, it was a short, and it was about looking at my family. Oh. Okay. Um, and the lies we told my father, in order for the women to live, their lives. So, um, very much about public face, private face, which also. That's something I'm obsessed with. I mean, Sir, the Sir George uh, Williams incident, definitely, that you had you had what was happening publicly in the media, and then you also had what was happening internally with the students, right? So I'm always interested in that dichotomy. Um, but I, I think what, what I brought to the movie um, was an attention to the emotions in, as a narrative, as a fiction filmmaker. And, and also to the emotions of the participants. So we created, you know, Selwyn and I worked really hard to create a, um, an atmospheric space that gave them the sense memory of being back in 69, being watched in the paranoid, um, isolated time that they were in. I mean, all that set dressing in the, in the interview sequences, none of that was really there. We, we created that. Um, and that helped, the, I call it the performance of the students, of, mm. of our participants. So, I... I mean, often in a documentary film, you see an interview with one of the students, the yeah. former students at a <coughs> coffee shop, or there's a plant out of focus right yes, in the background. Yes, or it's at their house and they're making tea. Or, yeah. Library in the background. That's right. The library, the books, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you were, but you were very intentional about not wanting that to be the case. Yeah, and I was, I think, very deliberately wanting to even think about where the cameras were positioned, um, how that they were interrogative in a way. Like we always had their surveillance cameras through the, through the, through the CCTV spy monitors. We had... So now we're back to Foucault, just so you know. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. We had, you know, what I would consider sort of slightly ugly frames. Right, you know? right, right. Uh, they, weren't, they weren't center square looking at the lens going, right. hi, this is a documentary. Which for me as a viewer was very compelling, by the way. I mean, right. maybe others, critics or whatever might say, or people that might say, oh, wow, I, I had a hard time watching that because it was ugly. Yes. But, I think it actually drew people in. Mm. There's that sense of mystery, right? As a, you know, there's a couple of, th- like as a filmmaker, I, I, have every faith that the audience is really smart. Mm, as opposed nice. to in television, often you have to repeat the information three times because they went to the bathroom or got popcorn right. or went beer, right. get a beer or whatever. But in, in, in cinema, I assume the audience is right there with me and culpable in the creating of the experience of watching. So I knew that they would get it. I have, very, I have much faith in the audiences to get that they are being made to feel uncomfortable. Do you think film has the ability to change the world, Selwyn? You've been doing it a long time. You've made a lot of movies. You've been involved. I still, I'm very disappointed I'm not interviewing you as an actor, by the way. (laughs) Starring in your next feature Um, Bond film. Yes. Yeah, that's a question I've been wrestling, you know, from day one. You know, I remember taking... um, 
has taken a course at USC called Film as Propaganda, or there's mm -hmm. a book called, um, yeah, prop whatever, whatever it was. It was ironically, it was a German guy teaching this um, this course, you know, and I, I, I put something at the end of my people answering that question. I said, you know, if film can change people's attitudes, then we can solve all the problems of the world by just simply making the right film. Mm -hmm. But we can't, mm -hmm. you know. We might get people who are predisposed to a certain way of thinking. They might come on board for a longer time. Other people go through it for maybe two weeks after they've seen the movie for other people by the time they've walked out of the cinema, they're back to square one, you know. So I don't think it can necessarily change. I think what it can do is to put a topic on the radar, so to speak. It can put a topic to, like this film, we think people can now feel comfortable to talk about racism, something that wasn't possible when the event actually uh, happened, you know. So that's that's my feeling about whether but, film can change attitudes. But, but, but Selwyn, you must have had a couple of films in, as you were growing up that changed you, that you watched, that changed you? Well, again, I, I wouldn't say so, you know. I think what it might do, it helped propel me to the goal, right. you know. Um, if I can go back to your first question, you know, this this whole idea of me wanting to see, see rep representation is me growing up and watching James Bond, you know, <laughs> and seeing Dr. No, and they filmed this beautiful film in Jamaica, and I'm thinking, why not? Why couldn't he film it in Trinidad, you know? that's It's all about right. representation. Right. And, you know, I give these things as jokes. You know, I remember as a young person growing up in Trinidad, we saw the, um, the movie uh, um, To Sail With Love with Sidney Poitier, mm -hmm. right? And that was based on a Guyanese uh, teacher, a Guyanese guy who went to England to study. And I'm sitting in pit with the guys there, and all they can think about, why the hell couldn't this guy be from Trinidad? Why, why? It didn't matter that it was a black actor of the statue of Sidney Poitier. Mm. And this is how people feel about representation. Mm -hmm. So my whole goal is, okay, I would see James Bond. I said, what would this movie be like if they had a black James Bond, you know? What would this movie be like if they were traveling through the Caribbean and all of these beaches? We have all of the, the sites, you know, to make interesting stories. So it's just representation was what was, was driving me. And I can remember, like, movies. I mean, I was a fan of Hitchcock from day one, you know. I remember at school reading a book called The 39 Steps by mm -hmm. Buchan. I read that when I was about 11 or 12. And I was eager to see Hitchcock's version of that sort of a thing. Mm -hmm. So I knew when stories, you know, touched me, you know. I remember as a, a little boy um, seeing a film called um, The Way of All Flesh with a Russian actor called Akim Tamarov. You know, I remember those things. as and, you know, and there's this one guy, he went, he had an affair with a prostitute. He was a banker. She stole all of his money. And the guy couldn't go back home because he was embarrassed. Mm. And there's this scene where he went back to his place and um, it was Christmas Eve and they're having a Christmas dinner. And, you know, he had a beard and all this sort of thing. And you can tell he was hungry. He just wanted to see his family one more time. And somebody pushed the door and um, said, um, may I help you? And he said, no, you know, like as a little boy, the tears came mm -hmm. out, you know. Later on, you know, it's, it is referred to as a melodrama. For me as a 12-year-old boy, seeing the emotion in that scene, you know, 
I would be, many times I'd be walking by and I see that and I said, my God, this reminds me of that, that sort of scene. So I think when I remember those things, they didn't really change me. But if you add up all of those cinematic moments, they push me to the point where when I first now heard about Ninth Floor, I could see the film mm -hmm. because I know what moments would be cinematic and what moments would be dramatic. And I think that's, that's how I would say those things impacted me. Mina, you mentioned in, in our last interview that, um, you know, again, sorry to bring back philosophy into this, but you kind of quoted Socrates in a way, and you said something about how we're all just trying to figure out how to live, mm -hmm. how, we, how we should then live. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Is that why you became a filmmaker? to some degree, would you say, reflecting back? And I think, you know, someone nailed it, I think, in my sense, I'm all about incremental change, right? Mm -hmm. For mm -hmm. me, it's about the little things making a big difference mm -hmm. and about the, the, the baby steps mm -hmm. that you might take in a development project. How do you eradicate malaria? How do you develop a, a program that's going to deal with a water and sanitation project? Well, you, you, you come at it incrementally. Mm -hmm. Yes, there's got to be top down, but it's got to be really grassroots and mm -hmm. human and mm -hmm. bottom. And your film is all about listening and you've got to listen to the community. And so it's all these things, this inclusive mm -hmm. kind of approach to mm -hmm. figuring out how to live. I love that, by the way. So I've got a dozen questions that are connected, but let's let's at least go with is that what sort of pulled you in in the first place to making to making films yeah to making films and being to being a better person yourself to to, yes. to challenging you know oh, if you're getting up at night thinking about your film then yeah. i'm getting the sense that you're not just worried about your paycheck on friday morning yeah it's funny cuz uh, i was asked to uh, edit or curate the guest newsletter for tiff this next week and so it's an opportunity to speak to an audience. I'm always like, oh, it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to say something. And, and I thought, well, what is it that you want to say? That the criteria was I was supposed to collect basically five or six links on the internet for people to read during coffee. And it could be anything. It could be about the idea of coffee or, and, you know, uh, Cameron Bailey did the history of hip hop in five links, right? And I thought, well, it always starts with like, what, what do I want to achieve out of that? And my thought was, I want to I want to bring everyone into a community, and make everybody, um, or relieve some of our, relieve some of our um, isolation in trying to just be together in a community and in the world, and trying to be happy and have careers. And so I did this. <laughs> it's so funny because the. the I got a response today from Tiff, and they were like, this is the most moving newsletter we've ever had. And I thought, oh, no, have I revealed too much about myself? But at the same time, if I'm not human, speaking to humans in my audience going, I've been scared. I've not known. And this is how I deal with it. That, uh, it's trying to find common ground. I think partly um, I, it's not a coincidence that two of my films have the word happiness in them. Right. Um, I, I think I, I, I think it's because of the color of my skin and my gender, maybe, and the fact that I'm an immigrant. It's trying to also find the definition of what happiness is, depending on where you come from, um, and that all the scope of that quest for happiness is actually something that has a common um, thread in it, which is we are all going to die. 
it, there is a finite date to all of us. Okay, so hang on. You want to talk about happiness, but the common thread is we're just, we're all screwed. Yeah, we're well, all just going to well, die, gonna anyway. die None yeah, of us yeah. are going to... Staring up at that ceiling in the hospital. In the hospital going, <laughs> yeah. oh, I hate the color of those tiles. Um, you, know what, you know what Oscar Wilde said, eh? The last words of Oscar Wilde were, were either the wallpaper goes or I go. <laughs> that's how, that's Isn't that like, awesome? That's great. Yeah, so that's how yeah, I feel. Like. Yeah. But, but because it's finite... Um, then we should, I think, try to be our best and do the, do the best we can in the little time we have, right? That's just my own philosophy. So how do we do that? And so the, my films often try to encourage people to um, be who they are, to, uh, find, to break down the barriers that, uh, that, it, that exist often in our own minds. Like always, for me, any character has an exterior um, obstacle. The administration are not listening to me. That's an exterior, and, and this is a documentary, right? Uh, um, the interior, bigger question for the students and everyone involved and the audience members is, how do I be who I am despite people not listening to me? How do I find the courage to not, like one of the, one of the most interesting things that I think gets brought up in Ninth Floor is from Nantali Ndongo who says, um, when I'm being watched and I don't know why I'm being watched, the big, pro big concern is if you change yourself because of that, then you stop being who you are. And so a lot of the questions in my work have to do with be who you are, whatever so, that so is. So I'm going to invoke Foucault again. I mean, essentially what he says is because we're being watched, we do change who we are. Right. Well, exactly. Period. Yeah, That's yeah. his right, sort of right, assumption right. in Discipline and Punish, the, right. birth, the birth of a prison. And he goes on to talk a great deal about uh, uh, the, the military, hospitals, education system, pedagogy. The way it's structured mm -hmm. is structured in a way that we always feel kind of like we're being the panopticon, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. That tower in the middle, George mm -hmm. Orwell, the all-seeing mm -hmm, eye. Mm -hmm. And now we don't behave like human beings. And I wonder to what degree... The, the, the administration, the professor uh, in Ninth Floor, the guy who basically started it all, if you will. Mm -hmm. I mean, why is it that some people are less human than others? Oh, no. See, <laughs> you I know, think, we all have a physiology. I don't, think they, I don't think they are. See, okay, I, this is where I differ. I think that we all just believe we're trying to find our own happiness. Even the worst evil person thinks he's trying to better humanity, according to their rules his own rules, right? And that, that's where point of view um, has its currency. Who, whose point of view has more power? That becomes the popular uh, belief suddenly. But, but I do believe everybody thinks they're doing good. In fact, that may be the problem. Like if we actually, if an evil person actually thought they were doing evil, it might give them a moment to reflect, but they don't. They think they're doing good. I've just started reading um uh, Cambodia's Curse by Joel Brinkley. He's a journalist who spent quite a bit of time in Cambodia, it's, as my listeners will know, and maybe you guys do too. I don't think it came up in our last interview, but it's a country of my sort of focus. I have a real deep passion for it and mm -hmm. working on a variety of different projects there development-wise. And Anyway, another time, another conversation. But I don't know that the Khmer Rouge when they started out, thought, we're going to kill this many people, right. we're going to cause this much damage, and so on. We're going to create this much evil. Mm -hmm to better our society. Mm -hmm. What they said is we want to make a better society. We're going to go back to ground yes. zero. Mm -hmm. We're going to, I mean, they chose, they made some pretty crazy choices, right. I think. So I think maybe that's what this conversation ultimately becomes about. Okay, we're all human, but some make better choices than others. That's right, yeah. Right, yeah. I mm -hmm. think. Mm -hmm. 
And even, well, I don't even know if it's better. They make different choices. Mm. Better, better connotes some, that there's some omniscient um, um, gradient in which we can go. That, you know, you get 2.4 for that and 6.5 for that. I don't think, it, I don't think it's... Is that the point. punk rocker in you coming up? <laughs> I think so, yes. Which, which I wanted to so desperately dig on our last interview about, but maybe we can talk about that in a second. It looks like someone has something to say yes, here. Yeah. Yeah, speaking about making wrong choices, especially when it comes as a result of having good intentions, mm -hmm. and I just want to switch gears here. And for me, how that manifests itself, it what has happened to this society in the evolution of residential schools where the church and the government actually felt that what they were doing was the best thing. Right. right? Yeah. And look yeah. how long it has taken this society to acknowledge mm -hmm. what has happened mm -hmm. and the problems that are manifesting itself, they're manifesting themselves right now, are directly related and have evolved from this one decision, mm -hmm. which was wrong, mm -hmm. you know? And then you go to ninth floor, and you look at it as the same scenario, you know, something was done, it was a wrong, and rather than listen to the students, they just ignore the students. Manifested itself in something that everybody assumed would have um, ended once the uh, professor was exonerated. Now we are realizing, just like um, residential schools, the fallout is manifesting itself even now. You know, and, and I think that's, a, that's something that I feel very proud of, is to be able to take the evidence and present it to people. And that's the reason why as we ask, why don't we have a narrator in the film? And as Mina said, we don't want to give an omniscient perspective of what happened. The story that you're hearing are coming from all of the horses, from the, house, the horses' mouths. <laughs> you know, and you can't criticize them for that. You know, it's, 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 it's amazing how sometimes we think we are doing right. And every time I work in the downtown east side, and I made a film called uh, Crazy Water, which deals with um, natives and alcohol, and the general perception is why can't the natives get their act together? And nobody is tying it back. And when I go back to all of my characters, the one thing they had in common, they either went to residential schools or their parents went to residential mm -hmm. schools. Mm -hmm. So we have, we have created yet a bigger problem as a result of having good intentions. So it's good intentions gone bad. <laughs> and this question is for both of you. Do you think that you can only know that looking back? Can you, you know, so is that part of the job of a filmmaker to document this kind of, a, of, of, of this kind of history, this kind of approach, this kind of a perspective on history to say, oh, wow, did we ever make the wrong decision? You know, like a fog, Errol Morris's Fog of War, you know, seeing Robert McNamara on film talking about Vietnam and talking about the firebombing of Tokyo and Japan and so on and saying, we would have been tried as war criminals. Mm -hmm. But at the time, it was the way forward. This was the way to win the war, supposedly. I'd like to think that some of us in that situation would have said no to the firebombs. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. Wooden cities, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. I mean, this is mm -hmm. this to me is, is not, yes, they want to end the war, but there's something else going on there, right? And it's not, you know, meaning you said perspective. Can't you and I stand there at that time together, hand in hand, and say, you know what, guys, you're wrong? Well, I think, and maybe this is me being too optimistic, but because we are living in a postmodern, self-reflexive society now, where everybody's watching everything as it happens, 
more than ever do we have a t chance to actually go, you know what, that, this decision we're about to make right now might be wrong. And to actually inquire about it <clears throat> as opposed to um, letting it happen and dealing with the debris. I mean, you, you sort of saw it with, with how the Syrian refugees were being dealt with in Canada and um, the outcry from the public. And that really, it, I think it affected policy. So it, that, that gives me hope mm -hmm. that the common person has a voice now. Um, yeah, I do, I do think that, and also because we're all, and everybody, the whole world is in some sort of therapy, whether it's pop culture therapy watching Oprah, or whether it's they're really in therapy because they can afford it and are educated enough to do it, there is a burden of self-reflexiveness now uh, in every action. Like I see it, I have a kid in public school, and you see it with in the policies of that school and the, and the Parent Teachers Association and um, being transparent and having their policies questioned. And, and I don't think that would have happened without the vocabulary of the 60s, of the protest culture, that punk rock, all that. If we didn't have that, we wouldn't be in a, in a place where someone who has the best intentions that might that are have gone bad, they might not have been stopped years ago. And now they might actually, I have hope that they might stop themselves. There's a sense to me in which I'm almost hopeful. Uh, I mean, I am very hopeful about a lot of things. I'm a hopeful cynic, I suppose, in many regards. But, but the fact that my reaction to the film was when I heard about it was, I think similar to yours, how come I didn't know about this story? And what do you mean this is Canada? I think I said that in the last <laughs> interview. It feel, felt like this was somewhere else in the world. Mm -hmm. And on a certain level, if, I, if I'm not going to be critical and, and cynical, I think that's actually kind of a good thing, that I think in a way about my country that way. Mm -hmm. It's a problem that I don't know the history, mm -hmm. but the sense that maybe, just maybe, this couldn't happen today. Maybe that's too arrogant? I don't know. But I'd like to think because of, you know, what you just commented on, the films like Ninth Floor and so on, we have a perspective now. Mm -hmm. We have the intention. We have the ability to make way better choices. Mm -hmm. But maybe that's what now makes you a little more dangerous, I'm not sure, right. because you start to get lazy, right? Mm -hmm. or, 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 or non-reflective. That's right, because you think it's good. We're all good. We're all fine. And then next thing you know, there's another fire. Yeah. <laughs> I mean... I think some films, the stories can be told, some stories can be told concurrently. And um, I feel that this story could not have been told while it was happening for a variety of reasons. Um, I went to teacher's college and I was in love with philosophy and I had a, a, a lecture. You know, he used to have these gems, you know, like Oscar Wilde, you know. And he would say to us as students, you know, when you go out there and you're teaching, remember, you cannot move too far ahead of your society. And you got to be always looking to say, okay, have I left them behind me? You might be thinking. And he had gone to, he had gone to England and studied, you know. And, you know, we are in our teens and we are trying to date and hold hands and be smooching on the <laughs> lawns and all this sort of thing. And he'd tell you point blank, you know, I was at Oxford universities and you'd see the young students there doing that. But I tell you, if you try to do that in Trinidad, at that time, it would not have been uh, accepted. And I've always looked at that, you know, whenever we're initiating change, saying I can't move too far ahead of their society. Mm -hmm. right. I started 
pitching this film in 1976, straight out of USC. And I took it to the office in Edmonton, and they just sort of brushed me off. Which was how the society, what, are you going to do a film about racism in Canada, you know? And I, you know, and, and I was just stopped, and I made a lot of other films, and gradually I started dealing with topics that I thought were more mature topics and a more mature society. And when I did the road taking, which showed that um, the the trade unions, the, the CN and CP, had collaborated, not collaborated, what's the word I'm looking for, but you know. Corroborated. Co- corroborated with the, one another mm-hmm. to keep blacks in that one job mm-hmm. as a sleeping car porter. Mm-hmm. And the way how that film was received told me that the society was evolving to the point where you can um, put certain topics and things. And those were some of the reasons I positioned my films as always watching the society to figure out, are they ready for this? Mm-hmm. Are they ready for that? And, uh, and, and so that distance. Now, in, in coming with that distancing, right, I'm more reflective, but there's a certain irony in this story because the archival footage that we had nothing to do with captured the reality of then. Mm-hmm. You understand? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it was a perfect example. So even though we might not be making films right now, and this is a society where everything is on Twitter, everything is on YouTube and that sort of thing. For somebody going down the road maybe 20 years from now and they ca- collect all of this thing, it's amazing how you could then reflect. Mm-hmm. Just a few people mm-hmm. are reflecting and commenting, you know, like people are starting to talk, well, kids are looking, uh, spending too much time on their computers and, you know, on their iPhones, and is beginning to do something with the way how they think. You know, newspapers are going out. Mm-hmm. And I listen to debates where people are saying there's a difference when you have a physical newspaper in your hand and the sort of connection you have with the material compared to when you're seeing it on your iPad or, mm-hmm. or what have you. Mm-hmm. I'm always doing the reflection in the here and now. There's some people, oh, I stop subscribing for newspaper. Right. But, you know, eventually somebody is going to discover something and we're going to have to change our attitude. So I think by making this film... As Mina said in the proposal, it's like um, a precursor. You're suggesting that pay attention to this film so that this scenario doesn't play itself out in the future. And if they listen to the message in the current film, maybe there is hope, as you said, for some optimism in the future. So the film has played quite a few times, obviously released at the festival back in September. It's been several months. I think Patricia uh, uh, from from the NFB, the publicist I've been chatting with, said it's pretty much played every festival. Uh, So you've kind of been across the country. Any themes, any threads, any stories that really stand out, something, uh, a reaction to the film, a question um, um, that stands out? The thing that I was most shocked about and continues to surprise me every screening depending what country what city we're in is somebody stands up and they are in tears and it feels like it's the first time they've able to been able to say or see their concerns reflected that blows my mind that that didn't happen for them earlier um, people are very emotional that's the thing that I go home and I'm just like whoa that it's such a heavy film, even though it's a hopeful film, um, it's the what the audience brings to it, which is their history. 
So I, that, that's to me, that's the thing. Well, that clearly, you're, you're you're clearly providing, and I think we did touch on this a little bit. I think someone in the last interview you talked about the space. Both of you did this space, and again, your your love for architecture, mm -hmm, as mm -hmm. you said uh, and have said, I'm sure before. But you, ironically, have created a space for people, a room, a room without walls, right? Right. right yeah, I, I do think that. Uh, the great thing about seeing it in a cinema together, the movie, is that you laugh and cry together. And by that common thread, there is hope. Release relief and hope, right, through mm, cinema. And nice. I, I really, I feel very privileged when I sit there and I experience that with people. You can feel it when, when Robert Hupshire has his three-minute monologue. Yeah, yeah. The entire room <laughs> just drops into silence. Right? You, can, you can hear the snowfalls. <laughs> And, and to be able to be vulnerable with each other in the dark space together with their emotions, I think that gives people hope that we're not so far away from each other, right? That, that's the beautiful thing about The thought that. I had the other day was, the way to build bridges is to assume that the bridge exists, yeah. period. That's right. Yeah. And then to figure out how, pray tell, how the hell am I going to get across this thing? Right. What are the obstacles that are in my way, whether it's other people or it's institutions? The bridge is already there. Damn it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We are in this together. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We are. There is, you know, it sounds so sort of corny and, and, and uh, I don't know. Um, I'm not even sure what the word is. I'm not even going to look for it anymore. But mm -hmm. there's this embrace, mm -hmm. right? There's mm -hmm. this uh, embrace around the world, you know. And uh, uh, But I think, you know, you travel in on the train from out west into Toronto. You look around, and I don't know if that's the cynic coming out in me, but I don't know if I feel that embrace. Maybe I'm not supposed to. Maybe that's part of the, the way that See, setting is set up. But maybe that in itself is a form of community that I just haven't figured how to break down those walls yet. You know, you know what I mean? Well, it, it's funny because if, sorry. Okay, well, if, you're, if there's, there's always, there's always going to be racism. There's always going to be people judging you. I do believe people will be your mirror. The world is your mirror. So if I come in, if I, I love this, what you said about, you know, the bridges already exist. I do walk into a space and I assume everyone loves me mm. and that it is safe. Hmm. It's not always true. I got totally dissed at the airport by the, uh, by the security guard. <laughs> you know, dissed, I think, personally because of being a woman, being a woman of color. He just didn't think I spoke English, right? Mm. So, I mean, I forgive him for his confusion. I can hold him down for him. <laughs> <laughs> I, but I forgive him because he's just, he's on his journey. We're not all evolving at the same pace. But uh, if I come in and I assume that the world, you know, because it's all an illusion, right? If I assume the world is, is a, uh, an open, safe community that embraces me, then perhaps I will encourage you to embrace me. Just because of that. Like that dude at the airport was not nice. I smiled at him anyway. You know, and I hope he thinks about how my English was actually, I don't have an accent at all. And I totally understood him. It's just really hard to move your luggage sideways quickly <laughs> through the security gate, right? <laughs> you know? And I, I hoped for a second he might have that human to human contact. I looked him right in the eye. I'm not gonna be able to change him right away, but if he has enough experiences like that, Perhaps the like the bridge is there. Well, speaking of forgiveness, I mean, I like this episode because I think it's a nice little metaphor for what we're hoping to accomplish with the film. We interviewed uh, Hugo Ford in Trinidad, 
and Hugo Ford is, again, the more I look at him, just the way he looks, you know, he says, <laughs> I grew up in Trinidad. I was a scout, you know, we care for the elderly and a nice little routine and you really get to understand where Hugo was coming from. And then at the end, you know, he said to me, Selwyn, you know, I wouldn't have liked to be in the shoes of that professor. And I thought that was such a thoughtful yeah. thing to say, you know. I, he, he, he actually says, says, my heart goes out to him. My heart goes out to him, mm -hmm, you know. Mm -hmm. I get goosebumps when I think mm -hmm, about mm -hmm, it, you mm -hmm, know. Mm -hmm. So this film is not about who did what, when, to whom, and who won. It's about the humanity, as Mina said, in this story. And I think that's why I like making documentary films, because it's, you know, it's not going to the court records or something like that, you know. Um, is the little stories that are the human stories. Mm -hmm. When when um, Rodney is trying to say this thing, you know, he look at his body language and his face, and he said, I've, I've, I've never told my kids what I did, you know, and, and my wife or, or marriage broke up, you know, because to, to not do the same thing was to suggest that I did something wrong, and I don't feel that I did something wrong, you know. And so the audience, after he delivers that, you realize here's somebody who made a choice, and he thought he was doing, he knew he was doing the right thing, but it led to a disintegration of his family. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But he stood there. Then you have Ann Cools. I couldn't say... You know, I couldn't admit to something that I didn't do, which isn't wrong, you know. So she served four months in prison for that. You look at Nantali, you know, she said, you know. She never about, knew her dad, she really. She never knew her dad, mm -hmm. you know. And then there's more stories that I talked to the guy named uh, Tiani, which is uh, Rosie Douglas's son. You know why he changed his name? He was embarrassed by the name Douglas. He went back to an African name, Tiani. A number of people who were involved in that incident, the way how they cope with it, they change their names. Mm -hmm. And so for me, the lesson learned with this film is that I had to admit that when I was studying in, um, in Alberta, I was feeling, that I was thriving on the propaganda that I was getting. Mm -hmm. So I thought the students were wrong, you know, to do it, to destroy the, the, um, the computers. You know, but by doing the film and, geez, I, I met all these people and really found out what happened and realized you cannot trust what you are getting in the media, not then and not even now. So this is why I think this film is so important because for the first time, the people in the community are seeing their, their idea of the story being told the way it was. And that's that's and, and I think that's why we we are getting that sort of response from people. A, a young woman there um, got up and spoke eloquently, and at the end she said, "I don't have a question. I just wanted to get this off my chest." <laughs> you know, those sort of things. And these were the people whose parents, you know, one woman was saying, "I had to coax my mother to come to the screen," and then he realized the mother was, was actually <laughs> there was during there the event, during and she'd the never event. told. She never told. You know. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah, that's you know? pretty incredible. So it yeah. is, you know, and we keep getting those those sorts of, um, you know, responses. And I think that's the beauty and the strength of the film. Well, I uh, I wish we could keep going, and we we.
could, but I'd probably get in trouble if we keep going too much longer because you probably have lives to live, actually. <laughs> You've got to work out this whole happiness thing for Yes, us, yes, you know. yes, yeah, yes. Yeah, okay, I'm working on it. Is that the next film? Is that part three? <laughs> well, I have a, a ne- my next film is called Meditation Park. Oh, and nice. it is, again, how do we live? How, how, do how does one? How well, does one I've live? thought... You know, I've always thought great filmmakers are, in fact, great philosophers. And just, I mean, we're all philosophers in our own way. I sadly was reading a book, uh, Stephen King's autobiography recently, and he kind of disses philosophy a little bit and (laughs) says that philosophy is irrelevant. And it's a tragedy when one of the smartest guys in the world thinks that a discipline that actually in my mind, peels back the layers of who we are. And like, as you say, how we shall then live. Um, it's, it's too bad, but uh, maybe he's, uh, hmm, he needs a couple other philosophers on his committee or something. <laughs> or, well, sometimes I think people get daunted by those terms, right? Mm. I, um, philosophy seems like some, something you need school in for. Well, it's out you know? there, right? Yeah. yeah. And maybe, but I think, I think to live is to be philosophical. Mm-hmm. Every choice you make leads you to another choice. And if you just trace anybody's narrative, it's a series of philosophical ideals Absolutely. that have led them to where they are. Hundred percent. Will yeah. you come and lecture in my next class? <laughs> I want to thank you both uh, for joining me today. Congratulations again on a, on a beautiful film, a well-crafted film. I mean, and, and an important piece that I think you know we talked about it briefly before the recorder was on. That's going to go on and continue to be a part of the dialogue and resonate with, hopefully, outside of Canadian culture. But it's certainly going to. Uh, um, I think we'll look back as it on, on it as a milestone for sure. So thanks again for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you very much. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.